Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. Hey, O3L listeners, Brett Vargo here, and today we have something incredibly special for you, our very first guest on Only Three Lads. For our 15th episode, we are celebrating our top five basis of the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. It is with great excitement and slight nervousness that we have one of those bassists with us today. Not only was Robert Vickers the bassist for the go-betweens from 1983 to 1987, but he has a long and illustrious career that stretches back to the late 70s with Australia's finest surf punk combo, The Numbers, and New York City's criminally underrated power pop band, The Colors. Now, listeners of this podcast know how very much the Gobies mean to me, as they could be my most oft-mentioned band on this show. I'm the guy who can't get through the go-betweens fantastic documentary right here without weeping at the sheer brilliance and poignancy of the band and their story. This is very truly a pinch me moment. So it is an incredible honor and privilege to welcome Robert Vickers to Only Three Lads. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Brett. Uh, I'm honored to be your first guest. Well, thank you. (laughs) I just want to start by making a very superficial side comment that you have always been to me one of the coolest looking musicians of all time. As a young musician in the in the 90s, I really wanted to model my rock and roll look after my heroes, the Beatles, ultimately. The Small Faces, Michael Clark from The Birds, Paul Weller, Brian Jones, Head Era, Peter Tork, and you from the Liberty Bell cover. But I never quite had the hair to pull it off. <laughs> well, that's 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 great to hear. I, I obviously I thought about this myself a lot too, and a lot of those people were also my idols from uh, from an earlier period. Uh, the first haircut I ever had done at a at a salon, I went in and uh, I didn't know what to tell them, but there was a jukebox in the salon, and it had a monkey's EP uh, or single. On the, on, on the set of covers that it had running along the front. Uh, and when they asked me how I wanted my haircut, I put it to Peter Talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, P- Peter just had such a cool look. He did. He was a great musician as well. I was a, a huge Monkees fan. Well, good. We have that in common. Yeah. Head is my favorite. I love when, uh, you know, the Paisley shirts and the beads came out and they got a little uh, more psychedelic. Yes, I, I like the whole thing. Uh, you know, I grew up watching the TV show, of course. And right. that's where I knew most of it from. The songs were just so great. Just a collection of unbelievable song absolutely so robert of course the topic of today's episode is our top five bassists so can i ask you who are some of your favorite bassists either contemporaries those who influence you whoever well that's a it's a very hard question because obviously there's a lot of bass players i like and it's often you know just for a track here or a track there to find you know one person that does everything but the number one person, of course, is really obvious. It's James Jameson, who oh, did yeah. all the Motown uh, bass lines. 
who was absolutely brilliant. He was at a class by himself, I think, in terms of not just a bass player, but a musician. Someone who could create melodies within songs almost at will and could play very busy parts which were incredibly listenable and became part of the, the song itself. That, I think, is my ultimate goal in playing bass is to create these alternate melodies in the song that improve the song and not just sit in the background filling up space. Uh, so he, of right. course, is my number one, definitely. And I'm not sure if you need anyone else after that, but <laughs> number two is probably Paul McCartney, just because he did a lot of the same thing, putting melodies into songs. He obviously was someone who could find melodies out of anything and wrote brilliant ones into other people's songs as well as his own. Absolutely. Also, I would say Carol Kay uh, for all her work. Uh, on those 60s, I grew up listening to 60s pop music on the radio, AM radio. That's what I basically grew up listening to. It's what my single greatest influence, I think, in music is. And a lot of those songs she played bass on, and they have beautiful uh, orchestral bass lines. Of course, her work with Brian Wilson uh, on Pet Sounds is, you know, the pinnacle of, of bass in an orchestral setting uh, where you can, you know, the bass doesn't necessarily sound like a bass. It can sound like other things. Uh, she was brilliant. Brilliant. Um, it can sound like a heartbeat, that part in uh, Don't Talk. Yes. Listen to my heartbeat where the bass takes yeah. on the heartbeat sound, yes. Where bass does something, and we get back to James Jameson and River Deep. Oh, actually, no, this was uh, Carol Kay, I think, River Deep Mountain High, where it goes up and down like a mountain. Uh, that's, yeah. you know, just things like that, which go beyond using bass as a very simplistic instrument. Uh, also, let's see, what am I up to? I think that was three, perhaps four. Uh, oh, playing with other people. I think Stu Cook from Creedence Clearwater Revival. Uh, who was someone, uh, was a band I really loved, and I loved the rhythm section. Uh, Doug Clifford yeah. was a brilliant drummer, and of course, Fogarty was a fantastic guitarist, and the way the bass and the guitar intermingled with the drums, it's just beautiful record making. To me, that was the epitome of how you play with a band. Probably also, number five, I would say Tita Weymouth, for her inventiveness in... Yes doing kind of brittle, funky things uh, where they're kind of danceable, but they also build a kind of nervousness about them. I, I, I really think she's really important in that band and, and underrated. Oh, I totally agree with you on that. She will be making my list during this very episode, in fact. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> uh, so that's that's five. I could come up with more, you know. That's brilliant. Bruce, Tom, Bruce Foxen from The Jam, Bruce Thomas from... Uh, the attractions, people like that. Just wonderful, wonderful bass players. But that was that would be my Do you see my list already? <laughs> you're, you're hitting on all my favorites. Oh, really? <laughs> that's that's beautiful. I, I think Bruce Thomas, well, Bruce Thomas and Bruce Foxen are both incredibly underrated. It just amazes me listening to some of the stuff from this year's model or Get Happy, just oh, how yeah. complex and, and fast those fingers move. <laughs> yeah. You see, I've, I've never been a believer that fast is important. Right. You know, 16th notes, I don't uh, I don't really care how fast you can play or how many notes you can play. It's the melody that, that matters. And someone like Bruce Thomas, and this goes for James Jameson in particular, someone who could play a lot of notes, but they were all important. They weren't just being played to fill up space. 
they all meant something. And I think that's that's what's really important. Paul McCartney had famously said that how he came to the bass was that nobody else wanted to play it. So what drew you to the instrument originally? Well, it's the same as so many bass players. Uh, I had started out playing guitar and I, I just started to play guitar. I was playing with a nylon string guitar, but I wanted to be in a band. And I had a friend who was in a band and he... Uh, said they needed a bass player, so I said I'd do it. I really didn't know much about playing bass. I'd listened to records, but I hadn't thought about them in terms of playing bass. So I had to learn on the job, which took a little while. Uh, I was in the band. This was the numbers that you mentioned earlier. We were all starting out, basically, but I was starting from absolute zero. So I really was just playing the root notes of the songs, like the guitarist in the band just said, just play the root note, just play the single note and you'll be fine. And a <laughs> it's lot that of it was, easy. Yeah, it was a lot of it was just straight ahead punk. We were doing pretty simple songs and it worked okay. And I was only in the band for probably six months. But I remember the the last show that I played after I knew that I was even leaving the band, that I was going to be traveling. I just thought, I'll, I'll just try something. And I was on stage, we were on stage playing. And I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll just try a few. And I started to play other notes that... I kind of knew we were in the same chord, and it worked. It was amazing. It was just like this this moment where I realized you can play other notes. There's the light bulb, and it doesn't clash with the other what anyone else is playing. So that was my realization that there was more to doing this than than I had been doing. Which well, it was it was literally like a light bulb going off in my uh, on my yeah. head. And uh, after that, it was so much more fun. Oh, wow. Did you leave the numbers before they morphed into the Riptides? Yes. After I left the band, there was another band that was playing in another city in Australia, in Sydney, that was also called The Numbers. And we didn't think that we would be able to continue as The Numbers. So uh, after I left the band, they changed their name to the Riptides and became more surfy. called the surf band earlier. That was a bit kind of like that. But the band that I was in was much more of a punk band. Uh, we wore suits and played a lot of covers of particularly uh, the, the Saints and some English bands and the Ramones and things like that. So we're much more of a punk That's band. That's a great set. In fact, Sunset Strip is one of my favorite Australian punk singles. Of course, you guys ripped through you know three amazing songs in less than eight minutes. And that single, of course, was on the go-between's Able label. So was that the beginning of your relationship with Grant McLennan and Robert Forster? Yes. Uh, I was in the numbers and Grant and Robert came to one of our shows and I borrowed our drummer to play, not their first show, but one of their first shows uh, as a duo. And so we got to know them and I became friends with them. And then later on, when I was living in New York, they were living in London and asked me to join the band. But that was where I first met them in in Brisbane. You left the numbers and you went off to travel. Of course, you fell into the colors. Did you intend to stay in New York and be a part of the music scene or did it just kind of happen that way? Well, I was intending to go on to Europe and go to London. And I got to New York and I had my ticket to go to London. And I'd actually arranged to meet my sister in Venice on a certain date. And I went to a few clubs. I went to Max's Kansas City and I went to CBGB's and I met a whole bunch of people, particularly at CBGB's. I met people. In fact, the first night I went to CBGB's, 
I met someone who took me to a friend of theirs storefront nearby who turned out to be a guitarist who was looking for a bass player. And by the time I left his house, I was in a band and I had a place to stay. So I tore up my ticket basically and stayed in New York. <laughs> and that was the colors. Yeah. Stay a while. Stay a while. Yeah. <laughs> so of course the colors were famously produced by Blondie's Clem Burke. So is that how you hooked up with him through the CBGB scene? Yes, we uh, we played at a few other clubs, but then we played at CBGB's and Hilly saw us and thought we had commercial potential, I guess, or something, and offered to, man to, uh, to manage us, which we, of course, said yes, because it also not only be managed by this guy who, you know, done all this stuff with all these great bands, but uh, we got into CBs for free and had a, an open bar tab. So it was uh, it was <laughs> an absolute dream come true for a 20 year old. And we, we played there a lot. We were almost like a house band there briefly for around a year. Uh, we played with a whole bunch of bands and recorded on that stage and did all sorts of stuff. It was a fantastic time. And Clem saw us and offered to produce a single for us. There was an independent record label that put up the money. And not only did he produce us, our drummer quit just before that. So he played with us for a number of shows and recorded with us. So we did our first, we did an EP with him playing drums. And that was a real education as a bass player to play with someone like that, who was just an extraordinary yeah. drummer. Just someone who, you know, had his timing was impeccable and just knew what phrase to play where instantly. He didn't seem to have to think about what to play. He just knew what to play that would work perfectly with the song. Uh, so that was, that was an amazing experience. To me, it always seemed like he had the flash of Keith Moon, but could actually keep time much better. Yeah, yeah, I, he was incredible. When he came to play with us, we gave him a tape of all the songs of our set, and we thought, well, you know, we'll come into rehearsal and we'll, we'll work on the songs, and, you know, it'll take us, you know, a week or something to get it right. First run through, he knew all the songs. He just knew them all. There were no mistakes. There were no, there were no changes. He just had yeah. parts for the entire set instantly. It, it was incredible. Uh, you know. Instinctual. Instinctual, yeah. He was a brilliant drummer to play with. So speaking of the songs, I mean, I think the colors had a great commercial sound and really, by all means, should have gone further. And in particular, the songs you wrote for the colors, I absolutely loved. Have You Seen Her from that first EP is one of my favorite power pop songs at the time. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. It's a it's a great song. During your time with the Go-Betweens, did you continue writing songs? And did you ever approach Grant and Robert with possibly getting a song on an album? No. Um, I won't say I didn't continue writing songs, but when I joined the band, it was specifically stated that Robert and Grant were the songwriters. There was no question of me writing songs. For the go-betweens. Yeah. You can understand, you're 
two songwriters who, I mean, we had to do we had to do a thing where there were six on every album there were six Grant songs and six Robert songs. You couldn't have any combination, otherwise it would have been very very difficult. It was really set. Robert had six songs, Grant had six songs. There was no question of me writing songs. So uh, I did never really thought about that. I did write a bit with Grant, like when we we were shared rooms, we would sit around and write songs a bit, but not a whole lot. And then once we stopped sharing rooms, that that stopped happening, which was too bad. I should have continued doing that because Grant had Grant had come over to New York when I was in the Colors. Uh, on the re- one of his returns from London, from trip to London, he stopped and lived with me in in the East Village for a month while I was playing in the Colors. So he knew the Colors very well. He he jammed with us in our rehearsal room. So you know, I've been playing with him for quite a long time, and we knew each other pretty well. Yeah, we should have continued writing, and it would have that would have been a smart thing for me to do, but I never did. I really thought of the Go Betweens as me working on Robin Grant's songs, and not right. as me me as a songwriter. And after that five years of the Go Betweens, I never I did continue writing songs, but I didn't write that many. Uh, I put a lot, so much energy into creative energy into thinking about their songs that I didn't really write many songs during the time that I was in the Go Betweens. Compared to when I was in the Colors, where I wrote a ton of songs. It was just such a perfect balance between the two of them. So I, I can understand not wanting to disrupt that balance. <laughs> and it would have been, I, you know, now I look back and I think, well, maybe I should have talked about B-sides. You know, there was no question of being on the albums, but yeah. I, I should have done that. But we always had so many songs. You know, particularly Grant was an incredibly prolific writer. He always had twice as many songs as was was needed. So we always had so many songs that that was never a question. Well, it's amazing. Us fans, we have been absolutely spoiled with the first two volumes of the Domino box sets. And there's just, it's incredible how much material you guys recorded during that time yes we did because particularly because grant had all these songs and because we were doing one album a year but we're only doing six songs of each songwriter and at that point particularly in that point in your life you you do write a lot of songs we just had an unbelievable amount of songs to choose from and grant could come up with a song at the drop of a hat he would just bring in like a a a complete song that was almost a classic and just that's that's fantastic also, as, as a songwriter myself, it was pretty intimidating to work with people like that uh, who could write, particularly write lyrics as good as that. Their lyrics were, were so good, and I never felt I could come anywhere near that. So it, it was very intimidating to listen to them constantly, daily, coming up with brilliant lyrics. Uh, but it was fun. They did. The three albums you recorded with the go between Spring Hill Fair, Liberty Bell, and Tallulah, I consider to be as strong a three album run as any in pop history. So I guess a, a two part question, and the answer could be the same and it could be different. Which one do you have the fondest memories of, and which one is your favorite? Uh, well, Liberty Bell, both both questions. Okay. Liberty, Liberty Bell was, I think, was the most successful of those three. I don't necessarily think it's got the best songs, but it had the best recording. Uh, in that we went after the experience Spring Hill Fair we did with a producer in a very expensive studio in the south of France. It was a kind of an interesting experience, but it was difficult because we got into click tracks 
which caused problems with Lindy Morris and the drummer. And, you know, we had to, we had to do things we weren't really that happy with. Uh, so the recording process was difficult. Next album, Liberty Bell, we decided to work with a talented engineer and sort of co-produce it ourselves. So we'd have more control. So we were able to do it without quick tracks, doing it in a much more organic way. I think the recording sounds better, works better, everything works better. It's got great songs. So I think that's that's more successful. Cholula studio wasn't as good. We ended up slightly unhappy with the results of some of the recordings. We remixed them. Not quite as as coherent as uh, Liberty Bell, I think. Liberty Bell, I think, hit all the marks. So that would be uh, my choice for I would absolutely agree with that assessment. You know, it, it never even really occurred to me until the advent of the internet and, and I guess the Right Here documentary too, that Spring Hill Fair and Tallulah were considered anything less than absolute masterpieces. Yeah, we got a little bit of criticism for some of that because I think Before Hollywood, which was the album before Spring Hill Fair, was, was one of those albums where everything seemed to come together perfectly. And so when Spring Hill Fair was a bit angular it didn't really it didn't all fit together we did we recorded some singles separately did things separately it didn't all completely flow even though the songs were fantastic and individually they're brilliant collectively i don't think it's as strong an album for that reason as the one that went before and the one that went after it uh, and the same thing happened with Tallulah. so i think people picked up on that that as as an album it wasn't as perfect i still think they're uh, they compare with anything uh, is out there really <laughs> put them up against pretty good anything oh absolutely uh, all, all of them mean an incredible amount to me that's great I, and it is it is so wonderful to hear people talk about these albums so positively because when you when you do this stuff you know you move on and you you go on to the next thing and you don't you don't really think about necessarily how it's going to be thought about in 20 30 years and it's very, very nice to, to hear people say wonderful things about it, about this work you did so long ago. Uh, it's, it, it's wonderful. I started my journey with the go-betweens. Uh, I was 17, 1992. I just got my driver's license and I had a uh, car with a tape deck in it. So I wanted to go pick out some, uh, I, I went straight to the cutout bin. <laughs> they, were, they were only $3.99 at Kmart, so... Uh, one of the albums that I, one of the cassettes that I picked out was Liberty Bell, which I had read about in the Trouser Press record guide. And, you know, in those days, of course, before the internet, you would, you would read the review and imagine in your head what it would sound like. And I knew I wanted that, that, uh, tape and I put it in and, and it didn't leave my cassette deck for the better part of two years. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it had the best cover as well. And that, it that, did. That matters. That matters as well, too. You just all looked so cool. And, and honestly, when I first looked at the cover, I assumed that you were the front man of the band just because I thought you looked the coolest. So <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> it's funny how that works sometimes. A long time I looked at the jam. I know. <laughs> I looked at the jam and I thought Bruce Foxton was going to be the singer. You know, Weller, of course, dresses really well. They all dress really well. But I thought Bruce Foxton, yeah. he's probably the singer. 
But I was wrong. Just goes to show you. Well, he would get his one or two songs an album. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your favorite go-betweens bass lines? Well, um, going back to Liberty Bell, uh, Twin Layers of Lightning, I think, is the one that I'm most happy with. Yes. That's probably the, the bass line that I would say that did exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, I love hearing it. I love listening to it back now, which is great. Also, I think Park Company I really like. That gets into a bit of the, the kind of, I, I don't get anywhere near it, but it's that kind of James Jameson thing that I, I, I was hoping to, to do. Right. I like Spring Rain. Uh, that's a very much simpler ideas, but uh, I think worked really well with the song in a more like, in a more kind of Stu Cook kind of credence kind of sound where you're, you're working with the guitar and the drums and you're all fitting together but getting a bit of melody in there that helps the song along. That's the handwriting, that's the way she writes. From the first letter I got to this a bill of rights. Part company. Those those are ones that I, I, I would definitely say are my favorites. And there are others like draining the pool. You hit upon some of my favorites. I love your bass lines on slow, slow music. Ah. Which I don't think a lot of people regard as much of a song, but I, I love that bass part. Unkind and unwise. And actually probably a song that a lot of people don't know, but attraction. Ah, yes. There's another one with a lot of a lot of moving parts. Yes. Uh where I'm playing a lot of notes. And some people say, oh, it's too busy. But if you can get a melody in there that helps the song, that makes it worthwhile. You know, I always struggled with, and this is something, when I joined the band, I was replacing Grant McClellan on, on bass. He had played bass before. Right. And he was he was a very good bass player, you know, at a you know, really an interesting style. He played these melodic riffs through the songs. And it was another, because he was very good with melody, he could add other melodies to songs. He was great at that. And a lot of people who liked the early go-betweens really liked his bass playing and were very concerned that I was joining the band and that I might be somehow different. One person who spoke to me about this was the head of Rough Trade Records. And he said to me, well, you're not going to change the way the bass sounds in the go-between sound. You're going to play like Grant. And I was like, yes, yes, definitely. I'll, I'll see was the record company. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Uh, 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 you know, Grant and I have played together for years, we'll, we'll uh, you know, I'll play very, very, very similar to the way he's been playing. And then uh, our best friends at the time, who were Orange Juice, the bass player in Orange Juice, yes. David McClymer, he came and said, wait, you're not going to play like Grant, are you? You're going to get rid of all of that and, you know, <laughs> you're going to play like these, these funk players and, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be playing differently, don't worry. So I got lots of advice. Well, he was very good at that. Yes, he, he was. He was a good funky bassist. Yes, he was great. <laughs> and still is. He still is. Yeah, oh, and Unkind and Unwise was a song where I was definitely thinking about, oh, this is one that that is more like Grant would have played. So I, I was thinking about Grant when I played that, when I wrote that bass line. Oh. 
Captain, what was the other one? Oh, yeah, yeah, slow, slow music, which at the time there was, there were a lot of people trying these kind of funky things, like a Tito Weymouth thing, where you, where you have like this weird little riff, which goes, funky riff, which goes through the song and comes and goes at different times. And uh, I was trying to do that on that song. It isn't one of Grant's best songs, but it was a great chance for me to try something different. And I, I'm yeah. glad that people appreciate it. It has a good sound. Yeah, it had a great sound. Well, that was a, that was a great studio. The uh, studio. That, that was recorded in France. Yeah, yeah, in a place called Miraval, which is was a beautiful old chateau with its own vineyard that was had been converted into a studio by Jethro Tull, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, had converted into. Oh. No, he had, he had something to do with it, but it was this French guy called Jacques Lussier, who was a famous uh, keyboard player. It was his studio, and he he actually, if you if you listen to uh, Park Company, there's a weird keyboard line which goes through the entire song, and it's this high pitched sort of whiny sound. And he played it. We yeah. just asked him to play something. And he came in and just played this over oh, wow. company. It was beautiful. Well, you've answered one of my uh, long-standing questions because I always wondered what that sound was. I didn't know if it was a theremin or a violin or what it was, but yeah, that's that's a very distinctive part of that song. Yeah, he uh, he just came in and he just said, you know, it'd be great if you played something on one of that songs. So he did, and uh, he didn't think about it much. He just, <laughs> you know, improvised this over the top of the track. It was great. Oh, that's incredible. Jacques Lussier, he's a very, very, very famous uh, uh, French, French keyboard player from, I think, the 60s and 70s. And he had the studio, which is now owned, I think, the place is now owned by Brad Pitt, I think. Oh. Yeah. Strange. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a little strange. Yeah. All right. So going past the go-betweens and into the 90s, another one of my musical loves or some would say obsessions, is the New Zealand indie scene, particularly Flying Nun. And in the 90s, you played with the Clean's Hamish Kilgore in the band The Mad Scene. How did that come to be? Well, um, after I after I left the go-betweens, you know, I played with a few people. I played with Yola Tango briefly, did a tour of Japan, played with Lloyd Cole, did a tour of Europe and the US with Lloyd Cole. I played with someone named Amy Rigby, who's a female singer-songwriter. Uh, Diary of a Mod Housewife. Yep. And on that tour, actually, for a little bit. But I really wanted to be in a band where I could feel like it was my band, like the Colors was. I was trying to get back to that. And I knew Hamish from the kind of music scene. I'd met Hamish and I'd seen him play this fantastic drummer, like a really interesting drummer. So I really wanted yeah. to play with him. And he had a band with his girlfriend at the time, Lisa Siegel. And they asked me to play with them. And they had put out an EP, I think, and we had some interest from Merge Records. So I thought, this is great. You know, I'd be able to write songs, play with Hamish. And so I joined them and we played together with two different drummers at the time. We made an album and also an EP and it was pretty good. I found that I was not writing that many songs, but I did, you know, was able to get Hamish and Lisa to sing the songs which was great. They did a great yeah. job. And we also had um, 
a guy named Gary Olson, uh, who had a band called, who later had a band called the Ladybug Transistor. Another great band. Uh, yeah, played trumpet on on some of our songs, and he he played trumpet on one of my tracks. It was just fantastic. Uh, so that was that was great. I eventually stopped playing with them, but it was it was really good for a time. We did a tour of the U.S. Uh, and did some recording, and it, it was good. But I found I was not writing as many songs as I thought that I was going to be writing. I just I, they just didn't stop coming. So then I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that uh, you ended up playing a show with Grant and Robert in 1999. I think it was in New York. Did you find that it just kind of all fell together in place, um, like no time had passed? Uh, kind of, uh, because I'd been, you know, it's not like I hadn't seen them. I, uh, on the, the Lloyd Cole tour that I did to Europe and uh, America, I actually suggested that they do that tour together. They had banded, everything's broken up. All right. Uh, but I'd, I'd been speaking to them and they, they were talking about playing, you know, on-off shows together just as a duo. Lloyd suggested getting Robert to open for the tour. And I said, well, why don't you get Robert and Grant together because they have been playing together. And so I think that's what happened. We spoke to them and they, uh, and they decided to do it. So I'd been on tour with them, you know, playing in different bands. So I, I'd been yeah. seeing quite a lot of them. And then when, after I stopped playing with the mad scene, I decided that because I needed a job, because you know, me playing with the Mad Scene and other bands wasn't paying my rent. I decided to get a job in the music industry because that's where all my friends were and it seemed like a logical thing to do. So I got a, a job at this record company called Jet Set in New York. Right. And they asked me if I would talk to the Gobertreens about being on Jet Set being on Jet Set. So I got the Gobertreens to to put out Robin Grant's reunion record on Jet Set. And that was about the same time as they, and they came over to do press and things like that. And so, well, why don't you play, play a show? And they were like, well, why don't you come play with us? So, so I got um, Will Rigby, who was a drummer, the drummer in the DBs. Yep. Uh, I knew him. And I asked him to come along and play with us and just play a snare drum. So it would, it would just be me playing bass with two acoustic guitars. Uh, and he played the snare drum and, uh, and we played uh, a short set. It was fun. That's great. Yeah, it was. Was there ever any discussion of you being on the Friends of Rachel Worth? No, they wanted to start completely new. That's what they wanted to do. I mean, I, I if they had asked me, I certainly would have done it. But they they wanted to start completely brand new and you know had all sorts of ideas. Right. So no, there was never any any talk about that. It's not everyone that has a bridge named after the band he was in and a playground dedicated to him. So first of all, congratulations. <laughs> For the accolades because you are very uh, deserving and worthy of them uh what do you see as your legacy uh obviously i see the, the bass lines that i played on those go between records really that's that's where i think if anyone's going to remember who i was it's because they're listening to liberty bell and uh they listen to i don't know something like twin layers of lightning and go who's playing bass on that and look me up yeah. that's I guess that's that's the legacy. It's playing bass in, in indie rock songs where you can hear the bass. Yeah. 
<laughs> where the bass isn't uh, isn't like background, some sort of background that's filling space and you know trying to be invisible. It's something where you can hear a melody going on that fits whatever else is going on in the song. It works with the drums and it works with the, the vocal. It doesn't get in the way of anything, but it makes you want to go back and listen to the song again. And that's what I'm trying, what I was trying to do. And if I achieved it, that's what my legacy is. You did achieve it. And you have uh, people like me that will act as, uh, I guess, a, apostles. Actually, one of the most frequent comments that I get because I've, I've mentioned the go-betweens and probably Let's see, we're up to episode 15, and probably in at least five or six of the episodes, the go-betweens are featured in them in some way. And uh, one of the comments I get is, man, you you made me discover the go-betweens, and I'm so glad you did. So I think that that is a really cool thing, that uh, the music continues to live and breathe and live on. It is, because when you do this stuff, you know, you as I said before, you, you, you do it, you, you don't know what's going to happen. If you know a lot about the history of music, you know there are lots of fantastic bands out there who have totally forgotten, who made made a great record and nobody knows about it. It's just impossible to know about. It. To to think that people are remembering us is really important. It, it 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 is really a great feeling. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. We all we all appreciate it. There's a picture that I love of you from the uh, playground dedication ceremony with your fellow go-betweens bass players John Willsteed and Adele Pickvance. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you feel a certain kinship with them? Oh, sure, because, you know, they they spent a lot of time with some of my best friends. Well, actually, those two people right. spent a lot of time, particularly uh, with Robert and Grant and with Lindy and Amanda uh, and Adele with Robert and Grant. So we have a lot in common that even though we're you know different people and we even have different styles of playing bass, we have a lot in common. And it's great to always to see them both. Wonderful. And I, I love the picture of all of you uh, crossing the bridge to arm in arm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, that was amazing. That was a shock. I mean, that bridge was a, really a shock. That's a pretty incredible honor. To be honored in your hometown. It's really important. Yes. Yeah. On the streets of your town. Yes, exactly. So to speak. Yes. <laughs> so what is Robert Vickers doing now? Are there any projects you would like to mention? Well, uh, I mentioned I worked for a record company in, in around around 2000, I guess. I started working for a record company and uh, after about six years, I started my own freelance publicity company where I, I do publicity for bands. And so I work on other people's music now. People like I mentioned Amy Rigby before, Reckless Eric, Robert Forster, I do his records. Actually, Gary Olson, all these people in my past you know, come back, keep coming back. Gary Olson, I'm working on his new solo record. A band called The Apartments, who are an Australian band oh, that I knew I from. Love the Apartments. From 1980. Peter Walsh is a genius. Yep, yep. He's got a new record coming out in September that I'll be working on. So that's Great. what I do now. Uh, I haven't played in a band for a very long time. At the dedication of the, the Playground last year, I got Robert and Adele. You know, I sort of suggested very carefully and they immediately offered to play with me at a little party afterwards so that was great we did some go-between songs at um, at this little party uh, Robert sang Spring Rain and Adele sang Bye Bye Pride and we all played acoustic guitars because that's all we could do in this space but it was fun so that's the only playing I've done uh, in the last year basically I don't play very much anymore but I still work on music 
I'm still very involved in music. That's what you love, obviously, and uh, to surround yourself with music every day in, in some capacity, you know, certainly must be the most fulfilling life. I do. I, I, I love it. You know, I just want to say from a fan's perspective, thank you for everything that you have brought to my life throughout the years uh, that you've brought to so many go-betweens fans' lives. You know, I really appreciate you spending your time with us today. No problem, Brett. It's a pleasure. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.